This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. And if you enjoy this podcast, the very best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word. And take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I talked with Francesca Andereg about this new recording, Brave New Worlds, Music from the Americas, I asked her what was most memorable, and she actually surprised me with her answer. She had developed carpal tunnel syndrome due to her pregnancy at the time. She'll tell you more about that, and we'll hear about the pieces that appear on Brave New Worlds, Music from the Americas. This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. with Francesca Andereg about her latest recording, Brave New Worlds, Music from the Americas. Welcome, Francesca. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. The last time you and I talked, it was 2019. The world has changed a lot since then. So I'm wondering, how have you been and how are things with your family and just kind of managing through all the new COVID protocols in this new world? I'm doing very well. COVID has changed the world for all of us and, of course, musicians as well. And it hasn't changed my work as a teacher so much because I'm fortunate to still be meeting with my students in person and teaching one-on-one violin lessons. Um, As a performer, obviously, it has brought many changes. And um, during the last two years, I've experimented with various formats of delivering music to people. I did a whole pandemic recording album where I did music for solo violin and I learned how to record and I recorded in in my house and I did the editing and I released it on Bandcamp and I kind of did all of the pieces of the project that would normally be like a big collaboration. That was a great learning experience for me. I'm kind of glad that it was kind of a one-time thing. I also worked on a project Um, recording videos in front of a green screen and then working with a technology company, this really cool concept, um, something called the Immersphere, where the performer's image is placed into a virtual reality app that audience members can, by moving their phones, kind of like look around a space. So it like I recorded a video at my home, but it looks like I'm playing like on the plaza in Italy or in a great concert hall or like any of these places. And the um, audio is also edited to match so that you have this acoustic and also visual experience of space. It's an amazing concept. I partnered with some festivals throughout the country to present music like this. And, you know, it really pushed me to do things that today I probably wouldn't have, you know, to work with technology in this way. Um, I'm kind of glad that my particular performing life is getting back to a little bit more normal playing concerts for live audiences. And I think it's made me appreciate sort of the magic of um, being in front of a live audience that maybe we all took for granted a little bit. Ooh, that's kind of an interesting thought, things that we've taken for granted. What are you enjoying the most about being in front of a live audience again? I think there's this heightened energy that when people are really listening, um, it gives you as a performer more energy and you feel like you're feeding off of it. Also, the sense of immediacy in front of 
just kind of delivering the message to people who are right there receiving it, I just think it gives you this, um, as the performer, it gives you this energy, but I think it also gives energy to the people like receiving the message. I mean, I don't mean to sound too... Know, like all up in the clouds or something about this energy. But I just think it's a way of, of noticing, you know, what happens when we're, we're in the room with other people that we didn't really notice until it was taken away. Interesting. Your new recording, Brave New Worlds, Music from the Americas, uh, has just been released. Is this your fourth recording or your fifth? So if you don't count my little experiment into self-production. This is my fourth album. It was recorded before the COVID-19 lockdowns at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. What was most memorable for you about those recording sessions? Um, recording is a really interesting process because you're trying to create this sort of very live and present experience for people, but you're doing it completely alone in a concert hall. And it takes three days instead of, you know, the 45 minutes or hour that it would take to play it live. So I think um, it's a big challenge. Recording is always a big challenge, and I'm sure every artist and musician says the same thing, um, just to sort of muster that energy of the live performance over and over and recreate it. So I think musicians always look at it as, you know, like this big mountain that we have to climb to get to the end of our of our recording sessions, you know, because it just takes so much out of you. So I think that was memorable. Um, I was like seven and a half months pregnant. And I was like, I don't know if I can play this music. Well, though, there now let's talk about that a little bit, because um, as it so happens, I'm working on a Women's History Month special with a colleague, mm-hmm. and we've been talking about how challenging that is if you also choose to have a family have children, and be a professional musician. I'm sure this is true of most professions. But, you know, I would be curious, why was that so challenging when you were seven and a half months pregnant while you were making the recording? What made it so challenging? Um, Well, I had carpal tunnel syndrome. So playing through the piece was really hard. And actually, some pieces we had to record in sections because I just physically couldn't play it through. And I have pictures of recording it, and I have bandages, like, on my wrists, because I, I really had to, for three months, I had like a reduced playing schedule. You know, I would, it was just like the physical pain, actually. Um, or that I would play through the piece and then I would have to stop because the nerve would be, um, it would be set off. And then I, it's there's like a tingling and then you can't control what's happening in your hand. So that's actually the only time in my life where I've had that really significant like physical injury that was just so limiting that I almost couldn't do it. Was that related to your pregnancy? Or? Yeah, it's a common it's a common complication of pregnancy is carpal tunnel syndrome. Oh, I've never heard of that. Wow. Yeah, the nerves the nerves are uh, like the tissues fill with fluid and then it compresses the nerves. I mean, musicians do suffer from repetitive performance injuries and other things, and this is something I had no idea about. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Your collaborator on this recording is Matthew McCrite. What makes you such strong musical partners? I think Matthew's um, very innovative thinking about how to put pieces together is something that really um, is very inspiring. He's very imaginative. When we were trying to think of how these pieces fit together, he had so many great ideas, which was a huge part of the concept of the album. And 
I think um, just that combination of you know practicality in terms of the accountability that you have to have to learn you know this huge repertoire and to rehearse it and put it together for you know all the logistics and many concerts and traveling that we've done together, but also the vision and the inspiration that he brings to how to put repertoire together and kind of conceptually how to tie it together as well. Let's talk about the inspiration behind this recording. It's called Brave New Worlds, and it features music by composers from North and South America. And these composers forged new horizons in their lives. Can you talk a little bit about the connections they made internationally and how they broke down social barriers, and also how you chose the composers who are featured on this recording? So many of these pieces were written at a time when there was a great interest in Pan-American collaboration or connections between North America and South America. And many of these composers were like involved in those efforts and kind of pushing the boundaries beyond, you know, just their local scene to try to create kind of a bigger sphere of influence and and get um, new inspiration to incorporate into their musical style. So... um, the first example, um, Aaron Copeland, who his time in Mexico and his his work with uh, many Mexican composers, his research into the music of um, Chavez and the way that those influences found its, um, themselves into his music, I think was particularly relevant. And then also he was kind of celebrated by there was something called the Pan-American Association of Composers in the 30s that tried to bring a lot of these different um, compositional voices together. Aaron Copeland was one of their primary influences and, and also Villa Lobos. Villa Lobos also had an international reach. I think in his case, it was more about exporting um, his own multifaceted Brazilian sound to the world and then sometimes getting influences from um, like French music and, and, and other cultures. Uh, Hinastera also kind of involved in these like cross currents. Um, Hinastera lived in New York, studied with Copeland for a time, and also had this idea of like exporting um, his own kind of Argentinian sound out to the world and was known in his lifetime as, I would say, a, a leading light of sort of international composition scene. And then um, and Amy Beach's story is a little different, kind of not as much a part of this historical current that I'm describing, but um, she lived at a time when it was very unusual for um, women composers to be kind of professionally prominent. And through her privileged role as the the wife of an eminent physician, she was able to um, sidestep some of the the limitations that a lot of women experienced. Um, So women musicians typically in that time may be confined to the salon or the house or a group of friends, but not really getting their name out there professionally. But her music was um, premiered by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And so she was an unusual figure and certainly broke social barriers. So it was kind of this idea of, um, you know, and not all these composers were so related to each other necessarily, but just this idea about um, reaching out beyond, you know, a more limited sphere and kind of like expanding your your reach internationally or socially or whatever. So it was this idea of expansion, I think, that 
um, was the commonality behind these composers. The recording opens with Alberto Ginastera's Pompiano Number no. 1, and he was a student of Aaron Copeland's. And he, too, was part of that Pan-American collective. Can you talk a little bit about this piece and how it reflects the style of this um, composer's homeland? So um, the Pompiano Number no. 1 is um, it's the first of a set of pieces for various instruments. So the Pompiano Number no. 2 for cello is a very... Um, well-known concert piece, virtuoso piece. There's also a Pompeiana for orchestra, and and they're all um, really exciting. And they're influenced by the Pampas, the grasslands of Western Argentina. And so it's meant to evoke this idea of spaciousness in the music. And you can hear that in the first phrase. The violin has this soaring, free, rhapsodic line. It kind of toys with, you know, your sense of what a classical phrase might be because it just feels so open and kind of endless. Um, there's a whole rhapsodic first section that the violin plays mostly alone, but it's punctuated by these um, chords in the piano that, um, because they have a lot of fourths in them, mimic the open strings on a guitar. the guitar being an important folk instrument, you know, Gina said I wanted to include that as well. And then in the second section of the piece, very fast, energetic dance. It has that kind of very driving music and that quick alternation between being in 3-4 meter and being in the 6-8 meter. The violin also has some effects that imitate the guitar, pizzicato, strumming pizzicato back and forth, and a combination of left-hand pizzicato. And then some harmonics. So there's a lot of uh, technical effects as well. And it makes for a very exciting piece. Why was this the right piece to open the recording with? I think because of that sense of spaciousness that you get at the very beginning of, of the first phrase, and we really wanted that because that was such um, a big part of our idea for the whole album. We wanted that to kind of set the tone for everything. That sense of spaciousness continues with Gina Stara's teacher, Aaron Copeland, which is the second piece. And this is a duo that was written originally for flute and piano, and you're performing an arrangement by your teacher, Robert Mann. Tell me about this arrangement and why it has a special place in your heart. So there's a lot of virtuoso music written for the flute. And the flute can play very, very fast brilliant runs and just like lightning speed. And so such great repertoire written 
And whenever it's a range, there's always a little bit of a challenge because um, it's trying to capture that virtuosity. Um, but then the figurations, like the, the patterns and how they fit into the fingerings, are extremely different. Something that's very easy on a flute might be very difficult on a violin and vice versa. So any arranger has to take that into consideration. It's a question of sometimes re-arpeggiating some of the higher notes into a lower octave. That That's often um, one thing that an arranger does, taking flute and going to violin to kind of explore that like deeper, more powerful range that the violin has in that lower register, um, whereas the flutes kind of sounds loudest when it's being played as high as possible. Um, another thing that many arrangers do, as, as my teacher Robert Mann did in this one, is to um, explore effects like um, using the mute and using like ponticello sound to kind of get bigger range of timbre. My teacher, Robert Mann, he had such a sense of humor. So when I look at this arrangement and some of the chords, especially like the chords that end the first movement, it sounds like the last chord of the piece and then there's like a silence. And then there's another one and it's louder. And then like nothing happens. And then there's like another one and it's louder. It's just like, it's so true to what I knew of like his sense of humor. I mean, he, he just enjoyed music that kind of was sometimes like abrupt or a little bit funny or it had a, a very kind of punchy quality to it. And and I, ju I just hear that in, in his arrangement. And that's one thing I enjoy about it. And that's something I enjoy in music too, when it's a little bit unexpected. You know, it's not the smooth and beautiful, but there's like a moment of surprise. I, I enjoy that too. And so that makes me smile thinking of him and, and the qualities that of his musicianship. So the reason you chose to include this piece in part was because he arranged it. How does it demonstrate the theme of the recording? Again, the kind of sense of spaciousness I was referring to in the first piece, that's also present in the first movement of the Copeland. And here we hear that in the perfect intervals of the violin. Again, a little bit of a sense of like timelessness. And when the piano comes in, it's, it's very leisurely. The first movement is just meant to sort of flow along. Uh, there's been a lot written about Copeland, how in a certain period of his life, he simplified some music harmonically um, to evoke an idea of American folk style. And I think this first movement is very much in that vein. Um, it's that like sort of deliberate simplicity. And in this case, the simplicity is reduced and reduced and reduced to, to something that's just bare, pure intervals. And there's a real beauty to that, I think. Then we hear from Eder Villalobos, his Sonata Fantasia number no. 1, Can you talk a little bit about how this work reflects the depths of human despair, which is what I read about it? Yeah, so the work subtitled Desespérance, which is despair in French, this work may reflect some of the composer's 
influence from French music and from Europe and how it reflects the quality of despair, I actually think in, in many ways, often there will be a phrase that's set up, there's an expectation that's set up, and then it completely takes a left turn. That happens several times in the first half of the piece. For example, in the opening, the piano has these kind of pleasant chords, and then all of a sudden there's this just cascade, it just like all goes down to the bottom of the register. like a very disjointed way of thinking. Um, that also happens when the violin comes in. There's this very pretty, almost sentimental music. And then all of a sudden, very dissonant chords, kind of shocking, that just come out of nowhere. And so I think that that disjointed quality, I think, evokes the idea of despair, that sometimes it just kind of seizes you and takes you to a completely different place. I think the sometimes dissonance of the chords are meant to evoke like a suffering. And then at other times, you know, later in the work, there's a passage of all harmonics. So an almost like ghostly remembrance. I, I think it's it's really interesting how the composer explores despair in so many different ways within this one piece. That's actually only one movement. So it's clear why you chose to include this composer in this theme of your Brave New Worlds, Music from the Americas. Why was this piece the right work to represent this composer? So I think, um, you know, this project has a lot of layers, and one of them is this kind of geographical idea, and, you know, the expansiveness is another idea. But I think a, a third idea that we had, and we had a lot of ideas, was about um, a kind of an inner depth to some of these pieces um, and to the to the musical language that the composers used and how they wrote. And I think this piece in particular really explores that inner depth. You know, it's not it's not superficial despair. You know, there's it's really I think it's really deep um, trying to follow the composer into like sort of a labyrinth of how this piece was constructed and all the different representations of despair. And I think that expansiveness, we wanted to explore the idea that the expansiveness applies to sort of the composer's lives, but it also applies to um, exploring like inner depth as well. So this might be a stretch. I keep thinking about the suffering that you were undergoing during the recording process with Carpal Tunnel and how that's probably the worst thing that could happen as a violinist. As you know, you're trying to make a recording and I'm thinking, here you are playing this piece about despair. Did it bring new meaning to despair for you in that moment as you were recording this piece? <laughs> um, I think that possibly, 
possibly. I think it takes so much energy to just function with the, that physical limitation of carpal tunnel and, of course, um, just being pregnant and f functioning um, at all, doing anything, takes a lot more energy than, than normal. So I think, um, like I said, was talking about earlier, I think it gives you a new appreciation for, you know, just the ability to make music and, like, use our hands and, like, get up in the morning and have energy. It gives you a new appreciation for that. Well, that brings us to the final piece on this recording, the Violin Sonata Opus 343 by Amy Beach. This piece was out of print and unavailable for a long time. How did you discover it? And it's, it's in the public domain and it's widely available now. So I had been very taken with some of her chamber music. And so I was looking for a piece for violin and piano to do of hers and found this one and I was absolutely captivated. This, I, I just want this piece to be known far and wide because um, I think that it's compositionally a tour de force and we were talking about the inner depth. I think it explores a lot of extreme emotions as well. It is a virtuoso piece for both piano and violin and it's a major work that some believe would have entered the recital repertoire had it been composed by a Central European male. What do you think about that? I can certainly see that. So I, I don't like to, well, I don't want to elevate Amy Beach by saying, oh, it's so similar to Brahms. But, um, you know, being so familiar with the Brahms violin sonatas, in some ways I, I see a lot of um, commonalities there. The contrapuntal complexity, the sort of motivic through line that goes through the whole piece, the big singing line, there's so many commonalities. And Amy Beach's sonata is much more technically difficult for the violin. Because Brahms sonatas are, you know, usually a little bit more limited in range, and Amy Beach will just take the whole line and put it two octaves higher. Within the first two minutes, violent entrance goes right up, and then there's this like sort of very peaceful line way up at the top. It's really a big work for violin, technically and musically. It's quite, quite complex. The third movement in particular, I think there's some really late romantic dissonances and the harmonies really pushing, kind of pushing the envelope of um, romantic tonality. makes the piece much more touching and meaningful because the emotions are so heightened. And then at the very end of the third movement, there's this whole section where the whole 
tessitura, the pitch range of the piece, just goes higher and higher and higher, and it just kind of evaporates into this, um, like, twilight texture. You just have the sense that the piece is, like, going on forever, somewhere. Brave New Worlds, music from the Americas, with violinist Francesca Andereg and pianist Matthew McCrite. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Amaker, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media.